0: Chapter Two of the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. The Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two: The First Day's Journey and the First Evening's Adventures with Their Consequences. That punctual servant of all work, the sun, had just risen and begun to strike a light on the morning of the thirteenth of May. 1,827, when Mr. Samuel Pickwick, burst like another sun from his slumbers, threw open his chamber window, and looked out upon the world beneath. Goswell Street was at his feet. Goswell Street was on his right hand, as far as the eye could reach. Goswell Street extended on his left, and the opposite side of Goswell Street was over the way. Such, thought Mr. Pickwick, are the narrow views of those philosophers who, content with examining the things that lie before them, look not to the truths which are hidden beyond. As well might I be content to gaze on Goswell Street for ever, without one effort to penetrate to the hidden countries which on every side surround it. And having given vent to this beautiful reflection, Mr. Pickwick proceeded to put himself into his clothes, and his clothes into his portmanteau. Great men are seldom over-scrupulous in the arrangement of their attire. The operation of shaving, dressing, and coffee imbibing was soon performed. And in another hour, Mr. Pickwick, with his portmanteau in his hand, his telescope in his greatcoat-pocket, and his notebook in his waistcoat, ready for the reception of any discoveries worthy of being noted down, had arrived at the coach-stand in St. Martin's-le-Grand. Cab! Cab! "'said Mr. Pickwick. "'Here you are, sir,' shouted a strange specimen of the human race, "'in a sackcloth coat and apron of the same, "'who, with a brass label and number round his neck, "'looked as if he were catalogued in some collection of rarities. "'This was the waterman. "'Here you are, sir. Now then, fust cab.' "'And the first cab, having been fetched from the public-house, "'where he had been smoking his first pipe,' Mr. Pickwick and his portmanteau were thrown into the vehicle. "'Golden Cross,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Only a Bob's worth, Tommy,' cried the driver sulkily, for the information of his friend the waterman, as the cab drove off. "'How old is that horse, my friend?' inquired Mr. Pickwick, rubbing his nose with the shilling he had reserved for the fare. Forty two, two replied the driver, eyeing him a "'What?' ejaculated Mr. Pickwick, laying his hand upon his note-book. The driver reiterated his former statement. Mr. Pickwick looked very hard at the man's face, but his features were immovable, so he noted down the fact forthwith. "'And how long do you keep him out at a time?' inquired Mr. Pickwick, searching for further information. Two or three weeks,' replied the man. "'Weeks!' said Mr. Pickwick, in astonishment." and out came the notebook again he lives at Pettinwell when he's at home observed the driver coolly but we seldom takes him home on account of his weakness on account of his weakness reiterated the perplexed mr pickwick he always falls down when he's took out of the cab continued the driver but when he's in it "'We bears him up wary tight, and takes him in wary short, "'so as he can't wary well will fall down, "'and we've got a pair of precious large wheels on, "'so when he does move they run after him, "'and he must go on, he can't help it.' Mr. Pickwick entered every word of this statement in his notebook, with the view of communicating it to the club as a singular instance of the tenacity of life in horses under trying circumstances. THE ENTRY WAS SCARCELY COMPLETED WHEN THEY REACHED THE GOLDEN CROSS. DOWN JUMPED THE DRIVER, AND OUT GOT MR. PICKWICK. MR. TUPMAN, MR. SNODGRASS, AND MR. WINKLE, WHO HAD BEEN ANXIOUSLY WAITING THE ARRIVAL OF THEIR ILLUSTRIOUS LEADER, CROWDED TO WELCOME HIM. "'Here's your fare,' said Mr. Pickwick, holding out the shilling to the driver. "'What was the learned man's astonishment when that unaccountable person flung the money on the pavement "'and requested, in figurative terms, to be allowed the pleasure of fighting him, Mr. Pickwick, for the amount?' "'You are mad,' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Or drunk,' said Mr. Winkle. "'Or both,' said Mr. Tupman. "'Come on,' said the cab-driver, sparring away like clockwork. "'Come on. All four on you.' "'Here's a lark!' shouted half a dozen hackney-coachmen. "'Go to work, Sam!' and they crowded with great glee round the party. "'What's the row, Sam?' inquired one gentleman in black calico-sleeves. "'Row!' replied the cabman. "'What did he want my number for?' "'I didn't want your number,' said the astonished Mr. Pickwick. "'What did you take it for, then?' inquired the cabman. "'I didn't take it,' said Mr. Pickwick indignantly.' "'Would anybody believe,' continued the cab-driver, appealing to the crowd, "'would anybody believe, as an informer, to go about in a man's cab, "'not only taking down his number, but every word he says into the bargain?' A light flashed upon Mr. Pickwick. It was the notebook. "'Did he, though?' inquired another cabman. "'Yes, did he,' replied the first. "'And then, after aggravating me to assault him, gets three witnesses here to prove it.' But I'll give it him if I've six months for it. Come on! And the cabman dashed his hat upon the ground with a reckless disregard of his own private property and knocked mr pickwick's spectacles off and followed up the attack with a blow on mr pickwick's nose and another on mr pickwick's chest and a third in mr snodgrass's eye and a fourth by way of variety in mr tupman's waistcoat. "'and then danced into the road and then back again to the pavement "'and finally dashed the whole temporary supply of breath "'out of Mr. Winkle's body, and all in half a dozen seconds. "'Where's an officer?' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Put him under the pump,' suggested a hot pieman. "'You shall smart for this,' gasped Mr. Pickwick. "'Informers!' shouted the crowd. "'Come on!' cried the cabman, "'who had been sparring without cessation the whole time.' The mob hitherto had been passive spectators of the scene, but as the intelligence of the Pickwickians, being informers, was spread among them, they began to canvass with considerable vivacity the propriety of enforcing the heated pastry-vendors' proposition, and there is no saying what acts of personal aggression they might have committed had not the affray been unexpectedly terminated by the interposition of a newcomer. "'What's the fun?' said a rather tall, thin young man in a green coat, emerging suddenly from the coach-yard. "'Informers!' shouted the crowd again. "'We are not!' roared Mr. Pickwick, in a tone which to any dispassionate listener carried conviction with it. "'Ain't you, though, ain't you?' said the young man, appealing to Mr. Pickwick and making his way through the crowd by the infallible process of elbowing the countenances of its component members that learned man in a few hurried words explained the real state of the case come along then said he of the green coat lugging mr pickwick after him by main force and talking the whole way here number nine twenty four take your fare and take yourself off respectable gentleman know him well none of your nonsense this way sir where's your friends all a mistake i see never mind accidents will happen best regulated families never say die down upon your luck pull him up put that in his pipe like the flavor damned rascals and with a lengthened string of similar broken sentences delivered with extraordinary volubility The stranger led the way to the traveller's waiting-room, whither he was closely followed by Mr. Pickwick and his disciples. "'Here, waiter!' shouted the stranger, ringing the bell with tremendous violence. "'Glasses round, brandy and water, hot and strong, and sweet and plenty. "'Eye damaged, sir? "'Waiter, raw beefsteak for the gentleman's eye. "'Nothing like raw beefsteak for a bruise, sir. "'Cold lamp-post very good, but lamp-post inconvenient.' "'Damned odd standing in the open street half an hour with your eye against a lamp-post, eh? "'Very good, ha-ha!' And the stranger, without stopping to take breath, swallowed at a draught full half a pint of the reeking brandy and water, and flung himself into a chair with as much ease as if nothing uncommon had occurred. While his three companions were busily engaged in proffering their thanks to their new acquaintance, Mr. Pickwick had leisure to examine his costume and appearance.' He was about the middle height, but the thinness of his body and the length of his legs gave him the appearance of being much taller. The green coat had been a smart dress garment in the days of swallow-tails, but had evidently in those times adorned a much shorter man than the stranger, for the soiled and faded sleeves scarcely reached to his wrists. It was buttoned closely up to his chin, at the imminent hazard of splitting the back, and an old stock without a vestige of shirt-collar ornamented his neck his scanty black trousers displayed here and there those shiny patches which bespeak long service and were strapped very tightly over a pair of patched and mended shoes as if to conceal the dirty white stockings which were nevertheless distinctly visible his long black hair escaped in negligent waves from beneath each side of his old pinched-up hat and glimpses of his bare wrists might be observed between the tops of his gloves and the cuffs of his coat-sleeves. His face was thin and haggard, but an indescribable air of jaunty impudence and perfect self-possession pervaded the whole man. Such was the individual on whom Mr. Pickwick gazed through his spectacles, which he had fortunately recovered, and to whom he proceeded, when his friends had exhausted themselves, "'to return in chosen terms his warmest thanks "'for his recent assistance. "'Never mind,' said the stranger, "'cutting the address very short. "'Said enough, no more. "'Smart chap that cabman handled his fives well, "'but if I'd been your friend in the green jemmy, "'damn me, punch his head, "'cot I would, pigs whisper, pieman too, no gammon.' "'This coherent speech was interrupted "'by the entrance of the Rochester coachman "'to announce that the Commodore— was on the point of starting commodore said the stranger starting up my coach place booked one outside leave you to pay for the brandy and water want change for a five bad silver brummagem buttons won't do no go eh and he shook his head most knowingly "'Now it so happened that Mr. Pickwick and his three companions "'had resolved to make Rochester their first halting-place, too, "'and having intimated to their new-found acquaintance "'that they were journeying to the same city, "'they agreed to occupy the seat at the back of the coach "'where they could all sit together. "'Up with you,' said the stranger, "'assisting Mr. Pickwick onto the roof "'with so much precipitation "'as to impair the gravity of that gentleman's deportment "'very materially.' any luggage sir inquired the coachman who i brown paper parcel here that's all other luggage gone by water packing cases nailed up big as houses heavy heavy damned heavy replied the stranger as he forced into his pocket as much as he could of the brown paper parcel which presented most suspicious indications of containing one shirt and a handkerchief "'Heads! Heads! Take care of your heads!' cried the loquacious stranger, as they came out under the low archway, which in those days formed the entrance to the coachyard. "'Terrible place! Dangerous work! Other day? Five children! Mother! Tall lady! Eating sandwiches! Forgot the arch! Crash! Knock! Children look round, mother's head off! Sandwich in her hand! No mouth to put it in! Head of a family off! Shocking! Shocking! Looking at Whitehall, sir?' Fine place. Little window. Somebody else's head off there, eh, sir? He didn't keep a sharp lookout enough either, eh, sir, eh? I am ruminating, said Mr. Pickwick, on the strange mutability of human affairs. Ah, I see. In at the palace door one day, out at the window the next. Philosopher, sir? An observer of human nature, sir, said Mr. Pickwick. "'Ah, so am I. Most people are, when they've little to do and less to get. "'Poet, sir?' "'My friend Mr. Snodgrass has a strong poetic turn,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'So have I,' said the stranger. "'Epic poem, ten thousand lines, revolution of July, composed it on the spot, "'Mars by day, Apollo by night, bang the field-piece, twang the lyre.' "'You were present at that glorious scene, sir?' said Mr. Snodgrass.' present think i was footnote a remarkable instance of the prophetic force of mr jingle's imagination this dialogue occurring in the year eighteen twenty seven and the revolution in eighteen thirty and a footnote fired a musket fired with an idea rushed into wine shop wrote it down back again whiz bang another idea wine shop again pen and ink back again cut and slash noble time sir "'Sportsman, sir?' abruptly turning to Mr. Winkle. "'A little, sir,' replied that gentleman. "'Fine pursuit, sir, fine pursuit. "'Dogs, sir?' "'Not just now,' said Mr. Winkle. "'Ah, you should keep dogs. "'Fine animals. "'Sagacious creatures. "'Dog of my own once. pointer, "'Surprising instinct. "'Out shooting one day. "'Entering enclosure. "'Whistled. "'Dog stopped. "'Whistled again. "'Ponto! "'No go! "'Stock still. "'Called him.' "'Ponto! Ponto!' "'Wouldn't move!' "'Dog transfixed, staring at a board. "'Looked up, saw an inscription. "'Gamekeeper has orders to shoot all dogs found in this enclosure. "'Wouldn't pass it. "'Wonderful dog! "'Valuable dog, that. "'Very!' "'Singular circumstance, that,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Will you allow me to make a note of it?' "'Certainly, sir, certainly. Hundred more anecdotes of the same animal. "'Fine girl, sir.' To Mr. Tracy Tupman, who had been bestowing sundry anti Pickwickian glances on a young lady by the roadside, very said Mr. Tupman, English girls, not so fine as Spanish, noble creatures, jet hair, black eyes, lovely forms, sweet creatures, beautiful. you have been in Spain, sir, said Mr. Tracy Tupman, lived there ages, many conquests, sir, inquired Mr. Tupman. Conquests thousands Don Bellaro Fizgig, grandee, only daughter, Donna Christina, splendid creature, loved me to distraction, jealous father, high souled daughter, handsome Englishman, Donna Christina in despair, prussic acid, stomach pump in my portmanteau, operation performed, old Bellaro in ecstasies, consent to our union, join hands in floods of tears, romantic story very. "'Is the lady in England now, sir?' inquired Mr. Tupman, "'on whom the description of her charms "'had produced a powerful impression.' "'Dead, sir, dead,' said the stranger, "'applying to his right eye the brief remnant "'of a very old cambric handkerchief. "'Never recovered the stomach-pump. "'Undermined constitution. "'Fell a victim. "'And her father?' inquired the poetic Snodgrass. "'Remorse and misery,' replied the stranger.' "'Sudden disappearance, talk of the whole city. "'Search made everywhere without success. "'Public fountain in the great square suddenly ceased playing. "'Weeks elapsed, still a stoppage. "'Workmen employed to clean it. "'Water drawn off. "'Father-in-law discovered sticking headfirst in the main pipe "'with a full confession in his right boot. "'Took him out, and the fountain played away again as well as ever. "'Will you allow me to note that little romance down, sir?' "'said Mr. Snodgrass, deeply affected.' "'Certainly, sir, certainly. Fifty more, if you like to hear them. Strange life-mine. Rather curious history. Not extraordinary, but singular. In this strain, with an occasional glass of ale, by way of parenthesis, when the coach changed horses, did the stranger proceed, until they reached Rochester Bridge, by which time the notebooks, both of Mr. Pickwick and Mr. Snodgrass, were completely filled with selections from his adventures.' "'Magnificent ruin!' said Mr. Augustus Snodgrass, "'with all the poetic fervour that distinguished him "'when they came in sight of the fine old castle. "'What a sight for an antiquarian were the very words "'which fell from Mr. Pickwick's mouth "'as he applied his telescope to his eye. "'Ah, fine place,' said the stranger. "'Glorious pile! Frowning walls, tottering arches, "'dark nooks, crumbling staircases, "'old cathedral, too, earthy smell!' Pilgrim's feet wore away the old steps, little Saxon doors, confessionals like money-takers' boxes at theatres, queer customers, those monks, popes and lord treasurers, and all sorts of old fellows with great red faces and broken noses turning up every day, buff jerkins, too, matchlocks, sarcophagus, fine place, old legends, too, strange stories, capital. And the stranger continued to soliloquize until they reached the Bull Inn in the high street— where the coach stopped. "'Do you remain here, sir?' inquired Mr. Nathaniel Winkle. "'Here? Not I. But you'd better. Good house, nice beds, rights next door. Dear, very dear, half a crown in the bill if you look at the waiter. Charge you more if you dine at a friend's than they would if you dined in the coffee-room. Rum, fellows, very.' Mr. Winkle turned to Mr. Pickwick, and murmured a few words. A whisper passed from Mr. Pickwick to Mr. Snodgrass, from Mr. Snodgrass to Mr. Tupman, and nods of assent were exchanged. Mr. Pickwick addressed the stranger. "'You rendered us a very important service this morning, sir,' said he. "'Will you allow us to offer a slight mark of our gratitude by begging the favour of your company at dinner?' "'Great pleasure!' not presumed to dictate, but broiled fowl and mushrooms, capital thing! What time? Let me see, replied Mr. Pickwick, referring to his watch. It is now nearly three. Shall we say five? Suit me excellently, said the stranger. Five precisely. Till then, care of yourselves, and lifting the pinched-up hat a few inches from his head, and carelessly replacing it very much on one side— The stranger, with half the brown paper parcel sticking out of his pocket, walked briskly up the yard and turned into the high street. "'Evidently a traveller in many countries, and a close observer of men and things,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'I should like to see his poem,' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'I should like to have seen that dog,' said Mr. Winkle.' mr tupman said nothing but he thought of donna christina the stomach pump and the fountain and his eyes filled with tears a private sitting-room having been engaged bedrooms inspected and dinner ordered the party walked out to view the city and adjoining neighbourhood we do not find from a careful perusal of mr pickwick's notes of the four towns stroud rochester chatham and brompton that his impressions of their appearance differ in any material point from those of other travellers who have gone over the same ground. His general description is easily abridged. "'The principal productions of these towns,' says Mr. Pickwick, "'appear to be soldiers, sailors, Jews, chalk, shrimps, officers, and dockyard men. The commodities chiefly exposed for sale in the public streets are marine stores, hard-bake, apples, flat-fish, and oysters.' The streets present a lively and animated appearance, occasioned chiefly by the conviviality of the military. It is truly delightful to a philanthropic mind to see these gallant men staggering along under the influence of an overflow both of animal and ardent spirits, more especially when we remember that the following them about and jesting with them affords a cheap and innocent amusement for the boy population. Nothing adds mr pickwick can exceed their good humour it was but the day before my arrival that one of them had been most grossly insulted in the house of a publican the barmaid had positively refused to draw him any more liquor in return for which he had merely in playfulness drawn his bayonet and wounded the girl in the shoulder and yet this fine fellow was the very first to go down to the house next morning and express his readiness to overlook the matter and forget what had occurred the consumption of tobacco in these towns continues mr pickwick must be very great and the smell which pervades the streets must be exceedingly delicious to those who are extremely fond of smoking a superficial traveller might object to the dirt which is their leading characteristic But to those who view it as an indication of traffic and commercial prosperity, it is truly gratifying. Punctual to five o'clock came the stranger, and shortly afterwards the dinner. He had divested himself of his brown paper parcel, but had made no alteration in his attire, and was, if possible, more loquacious than ever. "'What's that?' he inquired, as the waiter removed one of the covers. "Souls, sir.' "'Souls! Ah! Capital fish! All come from London. "'Stage-coach proprietors get up political dinners. "'Carriage of souls. Dozens of baskets. Cunning fellows. "'Glass of wine, sir.' "'With pleasure,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'And the stranger took wine, first with him, "'and then with Mr. Snodgrass, and then with Mr. Tupman, "'and then with Mr. Winkle, and then with the whole party together, "'almost as rapidly as he talked.' "'Devil of a mess on the staircase, waiter,' said the stranger. "'Forms going up, carpenters coming down, lamps, glasses, harps. "'What's going forward?' "'Ball, sir,' said the waiter. "'Assembly, eh?' "'No, sir, not assembly, sir. "'Ball for the benefit of a charity, sir.' "'Many fine women in this town, do you know, sir?' inquired Mr. Tupman, with great interest. "'Splendid capital!' "'Kent, sir. Everybody knows Kent. Apples, cherries, hops, and women. Glass of wine, sir?' "'With great pleasure,' replied Mr. Tupman. The stranger filled and emptied. "'I should very much like to go,' said Mr. Tupman, resuming the subject of the ball. "'Very much.' "'Tickets at the bar, sir,' interposed the waiter. "'Half a guinea each, sir.' Mr. Tupman again expressed an earnest wish to be present at the festivity but meeting with no response in the darkened eye of mr snodgrass or the abstracted gaze of mr pickwick he applied himself with great interest to the port wine and dessert which had just been placed on the table the waiter withdrew and the party were left to enjoy the cosy couple of hours succeeding dinner beg your pardon sir said the stranger bottle stands pass it round way of the sun through the buttonhole no heel taps and he emptied his glass, which he had filled about two minutes before, and poured out another, with the air of a man who was used to it. The wine was passed, and a fresh supply ordered. The visitor talked. The Pickwickians listened. Mr. Tupman felt every moment more disposed for the ball. Mr. Pickwick's countenance glowed with an expression of universal philanthropy, and Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass fell fast asleep. "'They're beginning upstairs,' said the stranger. "'Hear the company? Fiddle's tuning?' now the harp there they go the various sounds which found their way downstairs announced the commencement of the first quadrille how i should like to go said mr tupman again so should i said the stranger confounded luggage heavy smacks nothing to go in odd ain't it now general benevolence was one of the leading features of the pickwickian theory and no one was more remarkable for the zealous manner in which he observed so noble a principle than Mr. Tracy Tupman. The number of instances recorded on the transactions of the society in which that excellent man referred objects of charity to the houses of other members for left-off garments or pecuniary relief is almost incredible. "'I should be very happy to lend you a change of apparel for the purpose,' said Mr. Tracy Tupman. "'But you are rather slim, and I am—' rather fat grown-up bacchus cut the leaves dismounted from the tub and adopted courcier not double distilled but double milled ha <laughs> ha passed the wine whether mr tupman was somewhat indignant at the peremptory tone in which he was desired to pass the wine which the stranger passed so quickly away or whether he felt very properly scandalized at an influential member of the pickwick club being ignominiously compared to a dismounted Bacchus is a fact not yet completely ascertained. He passed the wine, coughed twice, and looked at the stranger for several seconds with a stern intensity. As that individual, however, appeared perfectly collected and quite calm under his searching glance, he gradually relaxed and reverted to the subject of the ball i was about to observe sir he said that though my apparel would be too large a suit of my friend mr winkle's would perhaps fit you better the stranger took mr winkle's measure with his eye and that feature glistened with satisfaction as he said just the thing mr tupman looked round him the wine which had exerted its somniferous influence over mr snodgrass and mr winkle had stolen upon the senses of mr pickwick That gentleman had gradually passed through the various stages which precede the lethargy produced by dinner and its consequences. He had undergone the ordinary transitions from the height of conviviality to the depth of misery, and from the depth of misery to the height of conviviality. Like a gas-lamp in the street, with the wind in the pipe, he had exhibited for a moment an unnatural brilliancy, then sank so low as to be scarcely discernible. After a short interval he had burst out again to enlighten for a moment, then flickered, with an uncertain, staggering sort of light, and then gone out altogether. His head was sunk upon his bosom, and perpetual snoring, with a partial choke occasionally, were the only audible indications of the great man's presence. The temptation to be present at the ball, and to form his first impressions of the beauty of the Kentish ladies, was strong upon Mr. Tupman. The temptation to take the stranger with him was equally great. He was wholly unacquainted with the place and its inhabitants, and the stranger seemed to possess as great a knowledge of both as if he had lived there from his infancy. Mr. Winkle was asleep, and Mr. Tupman had had sufficient experience in such matters to know that the moment he awoke he would, in the ordinary course of nature, roll heavily to bed. He was undecided. "'Fill your glass and pass the wine,' said the indefatigable visitor. "'Mr. Tupman did as he was requested, "'and the additional stimulus of the last glass settled his determination. "'Winkle's bedroom is inside mine,' said Mr. Tupman. "'I couldn't make him understand what I wanted if I woke him now, "'but I know he has a dress-suit and a carpet-bag, "'and supposing you wore it to the ball and took it off when we returned. "'I could replace it without troubling him at all about the matter.' "'Capital!' Said the stranger. Famous plan. Damned odd situation. Fourteen coats in the packing cases, and obliged to wear another man's. Very good notion that. Very. We must purchase our tickets, said Mr. Tupman. Not worth while splitting a guinea, said the stranger. Toss. Who shall pay for both? I call. You spin. First time. Woman, woman, bewitching woman. And down came the sovereign with the dragon, called by courtesy a woman, uppermost. Mr. Tupman rang the bell, purchased the tickets, and ordered chamber candlesticks. In another quarter of an hour the stranger was completely arrayed in a full suit of Mr. Nathaniel Winkle's. "'It's a new coat,' said Mr. Tupman, as the stranger surveyed himself with great complacency in a cheval glass, "'the first that's been made with our club button.' And he called his companion's attention to the large gilt button which displayed a bust of Mr. Pickwick in the centre, and the letters P.C. on either side." P.C., said the stranger, queer set-out, old fellow's likeness, and P.C. What does P.C. stand for? Peculiar coat, eh? Mr. Tupman, with rising indignation and great importance, explained the mystic device. Rather short in the waist, ain't it? said the stranger, screwing himself round, to catch a glimpse in the glass of the waist-buttons which were halfway up his back, like a general postman's coat. Queer coats, those. Made by contract. No measuring. Mysterious dispensations of providence. All the short men get long coats, all the long men short ones.' "'Running on in this way, Mr. Tupman's new companion adjusted his dress, or rather the dress of Mr. Winkle, and, accompanied by Mr. Tupman, ascended the staircase leading to the ballroom. "'What names, sir?' said the man at the door. Mr. Tracy Tupman was stepping forward to announce his own titles when the stranger prevented him. No names at all. And then he whispered Mr. Tupman, Names won't do. Not known. Very good names in their way, but not great ones. Capital names for a small party, but won't make an impression in public assemblies. Incog the thing. Gentlemen from London. Distinguished foreigners. Anything. The door was thrown open, and Mr. Tracy Tupman and the stranger entered the ballroom. It was a long room with crimson-covered benches and wax candles and glass chandeliers. The musicians were securely confined in an elevated den, and quadrilles were being systematically got through by two or three sets of dancers. Two card-tables were made up in the adjoining card-room, and two pair of old ladies and a corresponding number of stout gentlemen were executing whist therein. The finale concluded. The dancers promenaded the room, and Mr. Tupman and his companion stationed themselves in a corner to observe the company. "'Charming women,' said Mr. Tupman. "'Wait a minute,' said the stranger. "'Fun presently. "'Knobs not come yet. "'Queer Place. "'Dockyard people of upper rank don't know dockyard people of lower rank. "'Dockyard people of lower rank don't know small gentry. "'Small gentry don't know tradespeople. "'Commissioner don't know anybody.' "'Who's that little boy with the light hair and pink eyes and a fancy dress?' inquired Mr. Tupman. "'Hush! Pray! Pink eyes! Fancy dress! Little boy! Nonsense! Ensign, 97th! Honourable Wilmot Snipe! Great family! Snipes! Very! "'Sir Thomas Clubber! Lady Clubber! and the Misses Clubber!' shouted the man at the door in a stentorian voice. A great sensation was created throughout the room by the entrance of a tall gentleman in a blue coat and bright buttons, a large lady in blue satin, and two young ladies on a similar scale in fashionably made dresses of the same hue. "'Commissioner, head of the yard, great man, remarkably great man,' whispered the stranger in Mr. Tupman's ear, as the charitable committee ushered Sir Thomas Clubber and family to the top of the room." The Honourable Wilmot Snipe and other distinguished gentlemen crowded to render homage to the Mrs. Clubber, and Sir Thomas Clubber stood bolt upright and looked majestically over his black kerchief at the assembled company. "'Mr. Smithy, Mrs. Smithy, and the Misses Smithy,' was the next announcement. "'What's Mr. Smithy?' inquired Mr. Tracy Tupman. "'Something in the yard,' replied the stranger. Mr. Smithy bowed deferentially to Sir Thomas Clubber, and Sir Thomas Clubber acknowledged the salute with conscious condescension. Lady Clubber took a telescopic view of Mrs. Smithy and family through her eyeglass, and Mrs. Smithy stared in her turn at Mrs. Somebody Else, whose husband was not in the dockyard at all. "'Colonel Boulder, Mrs. Colonel Boulder, and Miss Boulder,' were the next arrivals.' "'Head of the garrison,' said the stranger, in reply to Mr. Tupman's inquiring look. Miss Boulder was warmly welcomed by the Mrs. Clubber. The greeting between Mrs. Colonel Boulder and Lady Clubber was of the most affectionate description. Colonel Boulder and Sir Thomas Clubber exchanged snuff-boxes, and looked very much like a pair of Alexander Selkirks, monarchs of all they surveyed. While the aristocracy of the place, the Balders and Clubbers and Snipes, were thus preserving their dignity at the upper end of the room, the other classes of society were imitating their example in other parts of it. The less aristocratic officers of the 97th devoted themselves to the families of the less important functionaries from the dockyard. The solicitor's wives and the wine-merchant's wife headed another grade. The brewer's wife visited the boulders and mrs tomlinson the post office keeper seemed by mutual consent to have been chosen the leader of the trade party one of the most popular personages in his own circle present was a little fat man with a ring of upright black hair round his head and an extensive bald plane on the top of it dr slammer surgeon to the ninety-seventh the doctor took snuff with everybody chatted with everybody laughed danced made jokes played whist did everything and was everywhere to these pursuits multifarious as they were the little doctor added a more important one than any he was indefatigable when paying the most unremitting and devoted attention to a little old widow whose rich dress and profusion of ornament bespoke her a most desirable addition to a limited income Upon the doctor and the widow, the eyes of both Mr. Tupman and his companion had been fixed for some time, when the stranger broke silence. "'Lots of money! Old girl! Pompous doctor! Not a bad idea! Good fun!' were the intelligible sentences which issued from his lips. Mr. Tupman looked inquisitively in his face. "'I'll dance with the widow,' said the stranger. "'Who is she?' inquired Mr. Tupman. "'Don't know. Never saw her in all my life. Cut out the doctor. Here goes.' and the stranger forthwith crossed the room, and, leaning against the mantelpiece, commenced gazing with an air of respectful and melancholy admiration on the fat countenance of the little old lady. Mr. Tupman looked on in mute astonishment. The stranger progressed rapidly. The little doctor danced with another lady. The widow dropped her fan. The stranger picked it up and presented it. A smile, a bow, a curtsey, a few words of conversation— The stranger walked boldly up to, and returned with, the master of the ceremonies, a little introductory pantomime, and the stranger and Mrs. Budger took their places in a quadrille. The surprise of Mr. Tupman at this summary proceeding, great as it was, was immeasurably exceeded by the astonishment of the doctor. The stranger was young, and the widow was flattered. The doctor's attentions were unheeded by the widow, and the doctor's indignation was wholly lost on his imperturbable rival. Dr. Slammer was paralyzed. He, Dr. Slammer of the 97th, to be extinguished in a moment by a man whom nobody had ever seen before and whom nobody knew even now? Dr. Slammer, Dr. Slammer of the 97th, rejected? Impossible! It could not be! Yes, it was. There they were. What? Introducing his friend? Could he believe his eyes? He looked again and was under the painful necessity of admitting the veracity of his optics mrs Budger was dancing with mr Tracy Tupman-there was no mistaking the fact. There was the widow before him, bouncing bodily here and there with unwonted vigour, and mr Tracy Tupman hopping about with a face expressive of the most intense solemnity, dancing, as a good many people do, as if a quadrille were not a thing to be laughed at, but a severe trial to the feelings, which it requires inflexible resolution to encounter silently and patiently did the doctor bear all this and all the handings of negus and watching for glasses and darting for biscuits and coquetting that ensued but a few seconds after the stranger had disappeared to lead mrs budger to her carriage he darted swiftly from the room with every particle of his hitherto bottled-up indignation effervescing from all parts of his countenance in a perspiration of passion the stranger was returning and mr tupman was beside him He spoke in a low tone, and laughed. The little doctor thirsted for his life. He was exulting. He had triumphed. "'Sir,' said the doctor, in an awful voice, producing a card, and retiring into an angle of the passage, "'my name is Slammer, Dr. Slammer, sir, 97th Regiment, Chatham Barracks, my card, sir, my card!' He would have added more, but his indignation choked him ah replied the stranger coolly slammer much obliged polite attention not ill now slammer but when i am knock you up you you're a shuffler sir gasped the furious doctor a poltroon a coward a liar a a will nothing induce you to give me your card sir oh i see said the stranger half aside "'Negget's too strong here. Liberal landlord very foolish, very. Lemonade much better. Hot rooms. Elderly gentlemen suffer for it in the morning. Cruel, cruel!' And he moved on a step or two. "'You are stopping in this house, sir,' said the indignant little man. "'You are intoxicated now, sir. You shall hear from me in the morning, sir. I shall find you out, sir. I shall find you out.' "'Rather you found me out than found me at home,' replied the unmoved stranger." Dr. Slammer looked unutterable ferocity, as he fixed his hat on his head with an indignant knock, and the stranger and Mr. Tupman ascended to the bedroom of the latter to restore the borrowed plumage to the unconscious Winkle. That gentleman was fast asleep, the restoration was soon made, the stranger was extremely jocose, and Mr. Tracy Tupman, being quite bewildered with wine, negus, lights, and ladies, thought the whole affair was an exquisite joke. His new friend departed, and after experiencing some slight difficulty in finding the orifice in his nightcap, originally intended for the reception of his head, and finally overturning his candlestick in his struggles to put it on, Mr. Tracy Tupman managed to get into bed by a series of complicated evolutions, and shortly afterwards sank into repose. Seven o'clock had hardly ceased striking on the following morning, when Mr. Pickwick's comprehensive mind was aroused from the state of unconsciousness in which slumber had plunged it, by a loud knocking at his chamber door. "'Who's there?' said Mr. Pickwick, starting up in bed. "'Boots, sir.' "'What do you want?' "'Please, sir, can you tell me which gentleman of your party wears a bright blue dress-coat with a gilt-button with P.C. on it?' "'It's been given out to brush,' thought Mr. Pickwick, "'and the man has forgotten whom it belongs to. "'Mr. Winkle,' he called out, "'next room but two on the right hand.' "'Thank you, sir,' said the Boots, and away he went. "'What's the matter?' cried Mr. Tupman, "'as a loud knocking at his door roused him from his oblivious repose. "'Can I speak to Mr. Winkle, sir?' replied Boots, from the outside. "'Winkle! Winkle!' shouted Mr. Tupman, "'calling into the inner room. "'Hullo!' replied a faint voice from within the bedclothes you're wanted some one at the door and having exerted himself to articulate thus much mr tracy tupman turned round and fell fast asleep again wanted said mr winkle hastily jumping out of bed and putting on a few articles of clothing wanted at this distance from town who on earth can want me Gentlemen in the coffee-room, sir, replied the boots as Mr. Winkle opened the door and confronted him. Gentleman says he'll not detain you a moment, sir, but he can take no denial. Very odd, said Mr. Winkle. I'll be down directly. He hurriedly wrapped himself in a travelling shawl and dressing-gown and proceeded downstairs. An old woman and a couple of waiters were cleaning the coffee-room, and an officer in undressed uniform was looking out of the window. He turned round as Mr. Winkle entered, and made a stiff inclination of the head. Having ordered the attendants to retire, and closed the door very carefully, he said, Mr. Winkle, I presume? My name is Winkle, sir? You will not be surprised, sir, when I inform you that I have called here this morning on behalf of my friend, Dr. Slammer of the 97th. Dr. Slammer? said Mr. Winkle, Dr. Slammer. HE BEGGED ME TO EXPRESS HIS OPINION THAT YOUR CONDUCT OF LAST EVENING WAS OF A DESCRIPTION WHICH NO GENTLEMAN COULD ENDURE, AND, HE ADDED, WHICH NO ONE GENTLEMAN WOULD PURSUE TOWARDS ANOTHER. MR. WINKLE'S ASTONISHMENT WAS TOO REAL AND TOO EVIDENT TO ESCAPE THE OBSERVATION OF DR. SLAMMER'S FRIEND. HE THEREFORE PROCEEDED. My friend, Dr. Slammer, requested me to add that he was firmly persuaded you were intoxicated during a portion of the evening, and possibly unconscious of the extent of the insult you were guilty of. He commissioned me to say that should this be pleaded as an excuse for your behavior, he will consent to accept a written apology to be penned by you from my dictation. A written apology, repeated Mr. Winkle, in the most emphatic tone of amazement possible. "'Of course you know the alternative,' replied the visitor coolly. "'Were you entrusted with this message to me by name?' inquired Mr. Winkle, whose intellects were hopelessly confused by this extraordinary conversation. "'I was not present myself,' replied the visitor, "'and in consequence of your firm refusal to give your card to Dr. Slammer, "'I was desired by that gentleman to identify the wearer of a very uncommon coat—a bright blue dress coat— with a gilt button displaying a bust and the letters P.C. Mr. Winkle actually staggered with astonishment as he heard his own costume thus minutely described. Dr. Slammer's friend proceeded. From the inquiries I made at the bar just now, I was convinced that the owner of the coat in question arrived here with three gentlemen yesterday afternoon. I immediately sent up to the gentleman who was described as appearing the head of the party, and he at once referred me to you. If the principal tower of Rochester Castle had suddenly walked from its foundation and stationed itself opposite the coffee-room window, Mr. Winkle's surprise would have been as nothing compared with the profound astonishment with which he had heard this address. His first impression was that his coat had been stolen. "'Will you allow me to detain you one moment?' said he. "'Certainly,' replied the unwelcome visitor. Mr. Winkle ran hastily upstairs, and with a trembling hand opened the bag. There was the coat in its usual place, but exhibiting, on a close inspection, evident tokens of having been worn on the preceding night. "'It must be so,' said Mr. Winkle, letting the coat fall from his hands. "'I took too much wine after dinner, and have a very vague recollection of walking about the streets and smoking a cigar afterwards. The fact is I was very drunk. I must have changed my coat, gone somewhere, and insulted somebody. I have no doubt of it and this message is a terrible consequence. Saying which, Mr. Winkle retraced his steps in the direction of the coffee-room, with the gloomy and dreadful resolve of accepting the challenge of the warlike Dr. Slammer, and abiding by the worst consequences that might ensue. To this determination, Mr. Winkle was urged by a variety of considerations, the first of which was his reputation with the club. He had always been looked up to as a high authority on all matters of amusement and dexterity, whether offensive, defensive, or inoffensive, and if, on this very first occasion of being put to the test, he shrunk back from the trial beneath his leader's eye, his name and standing were lost for ever. Besides, he remembered to have heard it frequently surmised by the uninitiated in such matters, that by an understood arrangement between the seconds, the pistols were seldom loaded with ball. And furthermore, he reflected that if he applied to Mr. Snodgrass to act as his second, and depicted the danger in glowing terms, that gentleman might possibly communicate the intelligence to Mr. Pickwick, who would certainly lose no time in transmitting it to the local authorities, and thus prevent the killing or maiming of his follower. Such were his thoughts when he returned to the coffee-room, and intimated his intention of accepting the doctor's challenge. "'Will you refer me to a friend to arrange the time and place of meeting?' said the officer. "'Quite unnecessary,' replied Mr. Winkle. "'Name them to me, and I can procure the attendance of a friend afterwards.' "'Shall we say sunset this evening?' inquired the officer in a careless tone. "'Very good,' replied Mr. Winkle, thinking in his heart it was very bad. "'You know Fort Pitt?' "'Yes, I saw it yesterday.' "'If you will take the trouble to turn into the field which borders the trench,' "'Take the footpath to the left when you arrive at an angle of the fortification, "'and keep straight on till you see me. "'I will precede you to a secluded place where the affair can be conducted "'without fear of interruption.' "'Fear of interruption?' thought Mr. Winkle. "'Nothing more to arrange, I think,' said the officer. "'I am not aware of anything more,' replied Mr. Winkle. "'Good morning.' "'Good morning,' and the officer whistled a lively air as he strode away. That morning's breakfast passed heavily off. Mr. Tupman was not in a condition to rise after the unwanted dissipation of the previous night. Mr. Snodgrass appeared to labour under a poetical depression of spirits, and even Mr. Pickwick evinced an unusual attachment to silence and soda-water. Mr. Winkle eagerly watched his opportunity. It was not long wanting. Mr. Snodgrass proposed a visit to the castle— and as Mr. Winkle was the only other member of the party disposed to walk, they went out together. "'Snodgrass,' said Mr. Winkle, when they had turned out of the public street, "'Snodgrass, my dear fellow, can I rely upon your secrecy?' As he said this, he most devoutly and earnestly hoped he could not. "'You can,' replied Mr. Snodgrass, "'hear me swear—' "'No, no!' interrupted Winkle, terrified at the idea of his companion's unconsciously pledging himself not to give information. "'Don't swear, don't swear, it's quite unnecessary!' Mr. Snodgrass dropped the hand which he had, in the spirit of Posy, raised towards the clouds as he made the above appeal, and assumed an attitude of attention. "'I want your assistance, my dear fellow, in an affair of honor," said Mr. Winkle. "'You shall have it,' replied Mr. Snodgrass, clasping his friend's hand. "'With a doctor—Dr. Slammer of the Ninety Seventh, said Mr. Winkle, wishing to make the matter appear as solemn as possible. An affair with an officer, seconded by another officer, at sunset this evening in a lonely field beyond Fort Pitt. "'I will attend you,' said Mr. Snodgrass. He was astonished, but by no means dismayed. It is extraordinary how cool any party but the principal can be in such cases— Mr. Winkle had forgotten this. He had judged of his friend's feelings by his own. "'The consequences may be dreadful,' said Mr. Winkle. "'I hope not,' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'The doctor, I believe, is a very good shot,' said Mr. Winkle. "'Most of these military men are,' observed Mr. Snodgrass calmly. "'But so are you, ain't you?' Mr. Winkle replied in the affirmative, and, perceiving that he had not alarmed his companion sufficiently, changed his ground." snodgrass he said in a voice tremulous with emotion if i fall you will find in a packet which i shall place in your hands a note for my for my father this attack was a failure also mr snodgrass was affected but he undertook the delivery of the note as readily as if he had been a twopenny postman if i fall said mr winkle or if the doctor falls "'You, my dear friend, will be tried as an accessory before the fact. "'Shall I involve my friend in transportation, possibly for life?' "'Mr. Snodgrass winced a little at this, but his heroism was invincible. "'In the cause of friendship,' he fervently exclaimed, "'I would brave all dangers.' "'How Mr. Winkle cursed his companion's devoted friendship internally "'as they walked silently along, side by side, for some minutes, "'each immersed in his own meditations.' The morning was wearing away. He grew desperate. "'Snodgrass,' he said, stopping suddenly, "'do not let me be balked in this matter. Do not give information to the local authorities. Do not obtain the assistance of several peace officers to take either me or Dr. Slammer of the 97th Regiment, at present quartered in Chatham Barracks, into custody, and thus prevent this duel. I say do not.' Mr. Snodgrass seized his friend's hand warmly, as he enthusiastically replied, "'not for worlds!' "'A thrill passed over Mr. Winkle's frame "'as the conviction that he had nothing to hope "'from his friend's fears, "'and that he was destined to become an animated target, "'rushed forcibly upon him. "'The state of the case having been formally explained "'to Mr. Snodgrass, "'and a case of satisfactory pistols "'with the satisfactory accompaniments "'of powder, ball, and caps having been hired "'from a manufacturer in Rochester,' The two friends returned to their inn. Mr. Winkle to ruminate on the approaching struggle, and Mr. Snodgrass to arrange the weapons of war and put them into proper order for immediate use. It was a dull and heavy evening when they again sallied forth on their awkward errand. Mr. Winkle was muffled up in a huge cloak to escape observation, and Mr. Snodgrass bore under his the instruments of destruction. "'Have you got everything?' said Mr. Winkle, in an agitated tone. "'Everything,' replied Mr. Snodgrass. "'Plenty of ammunition, in case the shots don't take effect. "'There's a quarter of a pound of powder in the case, "'and I have got two newspapers in my pocket for the loadings.' These were instances of friendship for which any man might reasonably feel most grateful. The presumption is that the gratitude of Mr. Winkle was too powerful for utterance, as he said nothing, but continued to walk on, rather slowly.' "'We are in excellent time,' said Mr. Snodgrass, as they climbed the fence of the first field. "'The sun is just going down.' Mr. Winkle looked up at the declining orb, and painfully thought of the probability of his going down himself before long. "'There's the officer!' exclaimed Mr. Winkle, after a few minutes walking. "'Where?' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'There—the gentleman in the blue cloak.' Mr. Snodgrass looked in the direction indicated by the forefinger of his friend, and observed a figure muffled up as he had described. The officer evinced his consciousness of their presence by slightly beckoning with his hand, and the two friends followed him at a little distance as he walked away. The evening grew more dull every moment, and a melancholy wind sounded through the deserted fields, like a distant giant whistling for his house-dog. The sadness of the scene imparted a sombre tinge to the feelings of Mr. Winkle. He started as they passed the angle of the trench. It looked like a colossal grave. The officer turned suddenly from the path, and after climbing a paling and scaling a hedge, entered a secluded field. Two gentlemen were waiting in it. One was a little fat man with black hair, and the other a portly personage in a braided surtout, "'was sitting with perfect equanimity on a camp-stool. "'The other party and a surgeon, I suppose,' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Take a drop of brandy.' "'Mr. Winkle seized the wicker bottle which his friend proffered, "'and took a lengthened pull at the exhilarating liquid. "'My friend, sir, Mr. Snodgrass,' said Mr. Winkle, as the officer approached. "'Dr. Slammer's friend bowed and produced a case similar to that which Mr. Snodgrass carried.' "'We have nothing further to say, sir, I think,' he coldly remarked, as he opened the case. "'An apology has been resolutely declined.' "'Nothing, sir,' said Mr. Snodgrass, who began to feel rather uncomfortable himself. "'Will you step forward?' said the officer. "'Certainly,' replied Mr. Snodgrass. "'The ground was measured and preliminaries arranged.' "'You will find these better than your own,' said the opposite second, producing his pistols, "'You saw me load them. Do you object to use them?' "'Certainly not,' replied Mr. Snodgrass. The offer relieved him from considerable embarrassment, for his previous notions of loading a pistol were rather vague and undefined. "'We may place our men, then, I think,' observed the officer, with as much indifference as if the principals were chessmen and the seconds players. "'I think we may,' replied Mr. Snodgrass, who would have assented to any proposition, because he knew nothing about the matter.' The officer crossed to Dr. Slammer, and Mr. Snodgrass went up to Mr. Winkle. "'It's all ready,' said he, offering the pistol. "'Give me your cloak.' "'You have got the packet, my dear fellow,' said poor Winkle. "'All right,' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Be steady and wing him.' It occurred to Mr. Winkle that this advice was very like that which bystanders invariably give to the smallest boy in a street fight, namely, "'Go in and win!' an admirable thing to recommend if you only know how to do it he took off his cloak however in silence it always took a long time to undo that cloak and accepted the pistol the seconds retired the gentleman on the camp-stool did the same and the belligerents approached each other mr winkle was always remarkable for extreme humanity it is conjectured that his unwillingness to hurt a fellow creature intentionally "'was the cause of his shutting his eyes "'when he arrived at the fatal spot, "'and that the circumstance of his eyes being closed "'prevented his observing the very extraordinary "'and unaccountable demeanour of Dr. Slammer. "'That gentleman started, stared, retreated, "'rubbed his eyes, stared again, "'and finally shouted, "'Stop! Stop!' "'What's all this?' said Dr. Slammer, "'as his friend and Mr. Snodgrass came running up. "'That's not the man!' "'Not the man!' "'said Dr. Slammer's second. "'Not the man!' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Not the man!' said the gentleman with the camp-stool in his hand. "'Certainly not!' replied the little doctor. "'That's not the person who insulted me last night.' "'Very extraordinary!' exclaimed the officer. "'Very!' said the gentleman with the camp-stool. "'The only question is whether the gentleman, being on the ground, "'must not be considered as a matter of form,' TO BE THE INDIVIDUAL WHO INSULTED OUR FRIEND DR. SLAMMER YESTERDAY EVENING, WHETHER HE IS REALLY THAT INDIVIDUAL OR NOT. AND HAVING DELIVERED THIS SUGGESTION WITH A VERY SAGE AND MYSTERIOUS AIR, THE MAN WITH THE CAMP-STOOL TOOK A LARGE PINCH OF SNUFF, AND LOOKED PROFOUNDLY ROUND WITH THE AIR OF AN AUTHORITY IN SUCH MATTERS. NOW MR. WINKLE HAD OPENED HIS EYES, AND HIS EARS, TOO, WHEN HE HEARD HIS ADVERSARY CALL OUT FOR A CESSATION OF HOSTILITIES and perceiving by what he had afterwards said, that there was, beyond all question, some mistake in the matter, he at once foresaw the increase of reputation he should inevitably acquire by concealing the real motive of his coming out. He therefore stepped boldly forward and said, "'I am not the person. I know it.' "'Then that,' said the man with the camp-stool, "'is an affront to Dr. Slammer and a sufficient reason for proceeding immediately. "'Pray be quiet, Payne.' "'said the doctor's second. "'Why did you not communicate this fact to me this morning, sir?' "'To be sure, to be sure,' said the man with the camp-stool indignantly. "'I entreat you to be quiet, Payne,' said the other. "'May I repeat my question, sir?' "'Because, sir,' replied Mr. Winkle, "'who had had time to deliberate upon his answer,' "'Because, sir, you described an intoxicated and ungentlemanly person "'as wearing a coat which I have the honour not only to wear, "'but to have invented, the proposed uniform, sir, "'of the Pickwick Club in London. "'The honour of that uniform I feel bound to maintain, "'and I therefore without inquiry accepted the challenge "'which you offered me. "'My dear sir,' said the good-humoured little doctor, "'advancing with extended hand, "'I honour your gallantry.' Permit me to say, sir, that I highly admire your conduct, and extremely regret having caused you the inconvenience of this meeting to no purpose. I beg you won't mention it, sir, said Mr. Winkle. I shall feel proud of your acquaintance, sir, said the little doctor. It will afford me the greatest pleasure to know you, sir, replied Mr. Winkle. Thereupon the doctor and Mr. Winkle shook hands, and then Mr. Winkle and Lieutenant Tapleton, the doctor's second, "'and then Mr. Winkle and the man with the camp-stool, "'and finally Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass, "'the last-named gentleman, in an excess of admiration "'at the noble conduct of his heroic friend. "'I think we may adjourn,' said Lieutenant Tappleton. "'Certainly,' added the doctor. "'Unless,' interposed the man with the camp-stool, "'unless Mr. Winkle feels himself aggrieved by the challenge, "'in which case I submit he has a right to satisfaction.' Mr. Winkle, with great self-denial, expressed himself quite satisfied already. "'Or possibly,' said the man with the camp-stool, "'the gentleman's second may feel himself affronted with some observations "'which fell from me at an early period of this meeting. "'If so, I shall be happy to give him satisfaction immediately.' Mr. Snodgrass hastily professed himself very much obliged "'with the handsome offer of the gentleman who had spoken last.' "'which he was only induced to decline by his entire contentment with the whole proceedings. "'The two seconds adjusted the cases, and the whole party left the ground in a much more lively manner than they had proceeded to it. "'Do you remain long here?' inquired Dr. Slammer of Mr. Winkle, as they walked on most amicably together. "'I think we shall leave here the day after to-morrow,' was the reply. "'I trust I shall have the pleasure of seeing you and your friend at my rooms, and of spending a pleasant evening with you after this awkward mistake,' said the little doctor. "'Are you disengaged this evening?' "'We have some friends here,' replied Mr. Winkle, "'and I should not like to leave them to-night. Perhaps you and your friend will join us at the Bull." "'With great pleasure,' said the little doctor. "'Will ten o'clock be too late to look in for half an hour?' "'Oh, dear, no!' said Mr. Winkle. "'I shall be most happy to introduce you to my friends, Mr. Pickwick and Mr. Tupman.' "'It will give me great pleasure, I am sure,' replied Dr. Slammer, little suspecting who Mr. Tupman was. "'You will be sure to come?' said Mr. Snodgrass. "'Oh, certainly!' By this time they had reached the road. Cordial farewells were exchanged and the party separated. Dr. Slammer and his friends repaired to the barracks, and Mr. Winkle, accompanied by Mr. Snodgrass, returned to their inn. End of chapter 2